Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. It's Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Quick note, right at the top, uh, we have uh, revamped the website a little bit. We actually have an email newsletter you can subscribe to if you go to combatclassics.org. And we also have an Amazon store right on our website. So if you guys want to purchase some of the books that we've covered, uh, including Ambler's Translation of the Education of Cyrus, which we're going to talk about today, uh, or other books that we've covered, as well as authors we've had on the pod, all that's available at combatandclassics.org. Jeff, Shiloh, we're back. Hi, guys. Hey, how you doing, Brian? Uh, so Jeff is going to give a little overview of book seven of Xenophon's The Education of Cyrus, and Shiloh is going to ask an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So Shiloh was saying just before we started recording here that uh, book seven is a huge book, and it's true. It's not the physically longest book of The Education of Cyrus, but it's packed full of really interesting things. And the invitation is just to figure out how to put them together. So there are five chapters. Um, and the first and last chapters have very exciting battles in them. Uh, there's the battle against Croesus um, and the huge united Assyrian force that Cyrus wins at the beginning. And then there's the battle uh, for Babylon at the end that Cyrus wins by a very clever method. Um, and in between, we have some very interesting uh, conversations, conversations between Cyrus and Croesus about um, how Croesus understands the uh, Delphic Oracle's command to know thyself, uh, conversations with Abradatus's wife, Panthea, um, over the death of Abradatus, which Cyrus discovers uh, in chapter three. And in chapter four, uh, there's a very... Um, uh, interesting discussion of how to keep peace among all these allies that Cyrus has, um, where Croesus gives Cyrus some advice and Cyrus uh, kind of follows it and kind of doesn't it, uh, doesn't follow it. So a uh, variety of things to talk about. Shiloh's going to have a question for us, but for me, the big theme here is the road to Babylon and then the road home for Cyrus and what Cyrus has when he's finally done conquering things. And we might get to that as well. So Shiloh, over to you. Yeah, so as Jeff said, Cyrus accomplishes his task today and takes over the, the greatest city in the known world, Babylon, and the second greatest city, Sardis. But I think um, one of the best ways to approach dissecting this massively rich chapter is to think of the three main characters who appear in it um, and what they learn. I, I've, I've come back uh, time and time again on this podcast to the title of the book, The Education of Cyrus. And I think um, in this chapter, uh, there's uh, an education given not just to Cyrus, but to a few other characters. And if we could just talk our way through that, uh, I think we'd be benefited by it. And so what I have in mind uh, first is that uh, the conclusion to what we spoke about on the last podcast, the Panthea Abradatus story occurs today. And uh, spoiler alert, Abradatus dies a horrible death in which he's dismembered. Um, Cyrus finds him uh, or, or goes and, and finds Panthea crying over his dismembered body. Um, Cyrus is said to be amazed when he sees this. He, he, he weeps. Remember, and I've said it a few times, we should pay attention to the time Cyrus cries. Panthea's tone has changed about Abradatus's deed, to put it mildly. So I think one way of thinking about her uh, conundrum is what does Panthea learn? What is, maybe we'll look back at what she said last time to her husband and what she says today about Cyrus. She seems to maybe have some regrets. What does she learn? And does Cyrus learn anything from her? 
The second character who receives something of an education today is Croesus, the great Assyrian uh, general. Um, as Jeff pointed out, um, he is rumored to have spoken to the Oracle at Delphi. Croesus says that he's learned some things uh, from that experience, particularly uh, things having to do with self-knowledge. Uh, and that being defeated by Cyrus has taught him something important. So we should ask the question, what is it that Croesus learns? And then again, does Cyrus learn anything from him? And then finally, at the end of the reading, Cyrus has conquered all there is to conquer. Uh, the campaign is over, as every good president knows. Once the campaign ends, it's time to govern. And different presidents uh, are good at campaigning. Others are good at governing. Uh, Cyrus is now having to confront this challenge himself. And he begins to learn... Uh, uh, or to see what governing entails and how it's different from campaigning. His friends are there. He's got to maintain the uh, Babylon. It's a hostile city to him. He surrounds himself with bodyguards. He never has any time for leisure. He's worried about people being uh, virtuous when they don't have rewards. So Cyrus uh, appears to, to um, learn something or, or uh, at least be educated in a new way today. So I think if we take these three characters, we look at what they're what they're taught, what they might learn, uh, and, and in particular, what Cyrus might learn from each of these examples, um, that would be a great way to proceed. So, so the overarching question is, is what, what did these characters learn, right, Shallow? Yeah, I think uh, that, that would be, in each case, does the character learn anything, first of all, and then second, does Cyrus learn anything? Um, I would I would like to build on that just a little bit, and maybe this is might be a good entryway to getting to those three. But what do we learn from Panthea? Sure. Yeah. Like, do you guys have any thoughts on that? Well, let me just start. Maybe I can I can point out a few things, and you can see whether um, you think my judgment is right on this. So, um, Panthea, I think, was on the same page with her husband, Abradatus, going into this battle. They both wanted Abradatus to do something uh, beautiful, magnificent uh, on the battlefield that would show Cyrus their gratitude and pay Cyrus back from abstaining from Panthea's virtue, from, uh, for preserving Panthea's virtue um, while she was in his custody. And as we mentioned, I think, in our last podcast, um, it's not clear that, that um, Cyrus was going to abstain. Uh, he himself wasn't interested, um, but they both feel, both husband and wife feel like they need to do something magnificent to show their gratitude. Um, and then uh, what Abradatus does leads to him being dismembered, as uh, Shiloh mentioned. Indeed, uh, I think he acts, my impression is that he acts contrary to Cyrus's instructions and goes a little bit further than what Cyrus tells him to do. And there are also circumstances that lead to his demise. But he, he dies in a very terrible way. And as a result, Panthea um, says that she regrets having sent him into battle in the way that she did. And she commits suicide. And then her eunuchs commit suicide as well. Um, so... Uh, I guess, why would, for me, the question is something like this. Uh, why would they think that they can do more than they actually turned out to be able to do? Because maybe that's uh, an indicator towards what she learned, that she learned that her powers and her husband's powers don't extend as far as they thought they did. Yeah, that, that seems right to me. Um, I would point out, too, something we mentioned last time in this respect is that um, um, 
they were, they're very beautiful people and they were concerned with others seeing them as beautiful. And that's contrasted um, quite harshly with the dismemberment of the husband. That's the ugliest thing that could happen. Cyrus picks up his hand and it comes off in Cyrus's hand and he reattaches it to his body and Pentheus says the whole body's that way. That's very different from being adorned in jewels just, uh, you know, two or three books earlier. And one of the things that occurs to me is that Pentheus had said, if we're trying to get uh, drilled down into Brian's question, she had said that she would rather be put in the ground um, proud of her husband than live the rest of her life a woman in shame with a man in shame. And that's clearly not what happens today. She says, Cyrus, we were wrong. I misled him, you misled him. And one of the things that occurs to me is that um, Cyrus has been trying the whole campaign to show that virtue is rewarded always. And today we run up against a situation, Cyrus is said to be stunned and amazed. Um, the virtue of Abradatus is not rewarded. And there's nothing that Cyrus can do to make his wife feel better. You'll notice that when he hears of it, he says to Gadatus and Gobrias, gather up as many good things as you can and bring them with us. This has always worked for him. Let's give her rewards. And she says, essentially, I don't want it. I'd rather die. And one wonders whether Cyrus hasn't hit a wall today with her. And so Jeff asked about the limits of, of their power certainly the limits of Cyrus's power seem to show themselves today. Uh, the, the, the moral psychology begins to break down. Jeff, you mentioned that Abradatus maybe went too far. And, and, and I agree with that because there's the passage where as the um, Assyrian army is kind of enveloping the Persians and Cyrus and Abradatus have this conversation that's basically Abradatus saying like, I don't really have, you know, I, I volunteered to be in the van vanguard or you know drew was it drawing lots did they draw lots and he ended up in the vanguard i think yeah that's right he got what he wanted yeah k coincidencia by the way yeah. um and but then he's in the safest place because the assyrians attempt to envelop and hit on the flanks so what is a brought like trying to get when he decides to stretch his forces and be out in front and basically take the fight to the Assyrians and how do we contrast that to what Charlotte just said about Panthea not wanting anything that that he she's offered all these gifts and doesn't take them and ends up killing herself like does do those two situations between Abradatus and Panthea are there some parallels there or is it different no I I do think there are some parallels here's the way I'd say it um so I think the plan was that Abradatus was supposed to um, use his chariot to mow down fleeing troops, right? He's on the van, but the thought is that the, the shock of the appearance of these chariots would, would break the Egyptian lines that are facing him. And uh, he'd basically be doing what cavalry does really well, right? Which is cut down the, the fleeing, not so good against phalanxes that hold their station. But because the Egyptians are packed so tightly together, the phalanx, the middle of their phalanx, it can't move. And so the question is, do you veer off or do you continue, right? And almost everybody, I think, with Abradatus veers off. Abradatus still continues. And the problem is uh, not that his uh, chariot um, is insufficient. It, it kills a lot of people. It's an incredible slaughter when it hits the Egyptian lines. But he can't stay in it. He's thrown out. 
And that separation is a prelude to him just being hacked to pieces, right? And so I'd say something like this. Um, both Abradatus, this is to get into your question, both, both Abradatus and Panthea think that they are wholes, that they're sufficient when you put them together, that they are kind of the whole universe. And so that means that they can do whatever they set out to do. But Abradatus uh, is thrown out of his chariot. He falls apart, right? He's, he's uh, taken into pieces and shown that he's actually not sufficient, partly by accident, but partly because he has this determination. He thinks he can do uh, much more than he can actually achieve because of his beauty, because of his completeness. And it's also partly, I mean, just if we're talking about the tactics of the circumstance, Cyrus, um, it's it said that um, Abradatus is, companions and table mates charged with him and it was the others who turned away right and i think machiavelli would say this is the difficulty of having a mercenary army is that they don't so cyrus in a way has put him in this position um the we, we've talked all along about how the persians are perform the best and a lot of other folks seem to run and plunder all the time whenever they're not whenever cyrus is not watching over them so i would just point out that uh, to pile tragedy upon tragedy in addition to everything that jeff said um uh, Abradatus is not put in the best position um, by being supported by mercenaries. And interestingly, Cyrus says to him before he goes in, if you're successful, um, uh, he says this, I'll just read it. Uh, Implant in your men a love of victory that you may appear the best of those on chariots and be assured if this turns out well, all will say in the future that nothing is more profitable than virtue. Now, I would say that uh, the prophet of virtue was not shown that day and was called into great question. And this is what I have in mind when I talk about Panthea. Um, Cyrus is under the impression that virtue can be made profitable, and he's shown that that's not the case. And of course, everything that Jeff and, and um, uh, says about Panthea and Abradatus and their beauty and the, the, the holes and the parts is true. And so I don't know, Brian, does this, show how these two scenes are connected in some way yeah it does and it and it and it leads to um another question that we can i think just want to touch on i want to get to croesus but um i feel like cyrus's kind of state if we look in like chapter one um you know he's kind of rallying the troops a little bit he's kind of touring the formation making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be giving a little pep talks and stuff and there's this really weird, at least I saw it, it was weird, um, around line 10, uh, Xenophon says, having said this and having, and he's talking to Chrysanthus and Erasmus before this, talk, gives them a little pep talk. Uh, and then he said, having said this and having begun the passing of the watchword, Zeus, savior and leader, he went on, as he passed between the chariots and troops and breastplates, when he looked at some of their formations, he would then say, Men, how pleasant it is to see your faces. Again, later he would say, among others, do you realize, men, that the contest at hand is not only about today's victory, but also about the one that you won before and about every happiness? And I was just like super confused as to like, that's a weird pep talk, you know? So what what is Cyrus like trying to teach his troops in this phase you know we're right before the battle the persians have formed up the assyrians are forming up they're getting ready to whoop it on and cyrus is saying like oh it's great to see you guys 
And then he's, and then he's saying, Hey, you know what? This isn't just about today. It's about everything that happened before and happiness. And I'm like, what, you know, this is not like Hal at Agincourt, you know, this, this <laughs> is just a, this is, this seems like a really weird, like pre-battle speech. So I'm wondering what you guys made of it in terms of, you know, what does Cyrus know that he's trying to impart? Um, what is he trying to teach the troops here? Well, I, I notice a couple of things. I don't think it gets us all the way to the answer, but um, Cyrus uh, quite frequently addresses people with the formula men, friends, and sometimes men, friends, allies. And I think of those three terms of address, friends are the closest. He uses it for the Persian peers, and I think for, for people that he feels um, like he can rely on. Men is a little bit less reliable, and allies is even less reliable. That's, that's my judgment of what those terms indicate. So by not saying friends in any of these terms of address, I think it's an indication he's concerned about the reliability of these troops. Um, the second thing I'd point out is in section 17, of uh, chapter one, um, so over on the next page, 206 in the Ambler, um, we get one of these uh, relatively rare Xenophontic remarks, um, maybe four or five lines in, thus did he boast when the battle was about to occur, otherwise he was not much of a boaster. There's something extraordinary, I think, um, in this particular battle for Cyrus, and I think he's aware, right, he's, he's vastly outnumbered, as he's been outnumbered before, but I think he's aware of how uh, much of a risk this is. I take this battle to be much more risky than the eventual battle for Babylon, which is won fairly cleverly. Is it, is it something like he sees the finish line? You know, like once he conquers Babylon, he's accomplished everything that he wanted to accomplish. And so it kind of comes back to Shiloh's point of, you know, the campaigning versus governing is this is the kind of final phase of the campaign that if he can defeat the Assyrian army in the field, then all he's got left is to kind of starve out Babylon, which he's pretty confident he can do. Um, that's not what happens, but he's confident he can do it. And so is there, do we think that in this xenophonic aside that he's starting to feel those butterflies of, oh my God, I might actually pull this off. Yeah, I suspect this is what uh, he says later on in chapter five bears, bears on this, right? The virtue of expansion is daring. The virtue of possession is moderation. This is the claim he's going to make later. And this is the limit of his acquisition. So this is the limit of daring. This is where he's at maximum um, risk. Uh, and he's going to have to learn to change his nature later on. But at this point... Uh, yeah, he, he is almost willing, I think, to say anything to his troops just to get them to um, attack against this wildly superior force. Yeah, and this is just to add on that, this is, this is the biggest odds, right, so far. That this is, they're, they're vastly outnumbered. Um, so he's pulling out, Cyrus is potentially pulling out all the rhetorical tricks for his troops to kind of be like, guys, don't worry about this. Um, so he's willing to try some things or at least riff on some ideas that he hasn't really uh, proposed before in order to get them to do what he wants them to do. Is that right? Seems right to me. 
Um, there was one more thing I wanted to point out, just circling back to uh, uh, the Panthea chapter, chapter three, which is something that made me very sad, but I also think is quite true. One of the last remarks in chapter three has to do with the burial mound that is erected for Abradatus and Panthea and the eunuchs who kill themselves. And the thing that struck me in that account is that uh, nothing about the burial mound is true. Right, the name uh, attached or the information on the burial mound is apparently that it's dedicated to the man and the woman, and uh, the eunuchs are called mace bearers. Uh, I think they had short swords or something like that. So uh, they don't even get fame from what is, on some level, a kind of beautiful, tragic story. It doesn't even get told correctly, at least as far as the, as the burial mound tells it. So not only is Xenophon saying, look, if you're really beautiful and you found your perfect companion and you think that together you make uh, a unity that um, uh, requires nothing in addition, right, like a whole cosmos, uh, if you believe that, not only are you going to take crazy risks and end up chopped to pieces, uh, but you're not going to be remembered the way you think you are. So you can't even really console yourself with the thought that the world will look back and say, uh, oh yeah, these folks were beautiful. Xenophon himself redresses some of that problem by telling us the whole story, but the burial mound doesn't do it. Yeah, there's really a kind of Socratic um, revelation of the... Um, I, I hate to say it this way, but the sort of lie of virtue, the beautiful, noble lie of, of, of and the allure and seduction of virtue um, that comes out here. And I think Brian is right. You know, my question was, what does Panthea learn? What does Cyrus learn? But certainly the most important question, the question I hope to get to is, what is the reader trying to learn? Because I think Xenophon teaches us things that Cyrus doesn't see. And it's not clear to me that Cyrus sees all the things that we've seen here. And one piece of evidence for this is, um, Jeff just pointed out that the eunuchs commit suicide um, when they see Panthea commit suicide. Um, but Cyrus, um, I mentioned last time, he thought Godotus could be a promising ally because Godotus had no attachments. Today, Cyrus will surround himself with eunuchs. There's this whole uh, very odd and sort of perversely bizarre saying where Cyrus is thinking to himself, well, you know, uh, uh, they'll be loyal and animals who don't have testicles are really loyal. And this is a great idea to surround myself with eunuchs. But here the eunuchs kill themselves when their master uh, kills herself. And so it, eunuchs do have attachments. And, and this has happened long before Cyrus ever decides to surround himself with eunuchs. And so I would just point out that in addition to what Jeff said about this being a very odd um, grave marker, um, this seems to further illustrate Cyrus's um, miseducation or misunderstanding about the way human attachment works and what the limits of it are. Well, can we, can we turn to Croesus? Um, yeah. You know, that was, I think a key part of, it was part of Shiloh's question, but also a key part of the, of this chapter is trying to understand like what happened in Sardis with Croesus. Um, so it, I, I'll, I'll kind of just tee it up and let one of you guys ask the question if you want to, because, um, that it seems relatively short, you know, um, we don't, I, I don't feel like we get a lot of information about that. So uh, I'd love for you guys to maybe take a stab at asking a question about Croesus and maybe riff from there. Well, for me, the thing that jumped out, um, 
So Croesus is the, um, the general of the Assyrian force, right? I think we've mentioned that. And he's defeated, and he's eventually, he, he gets to retreat or escape to Sardis, uh, which is his capital city, but Sardis is taken um, by force. And so eventually uh, Cyrus confronts him. Um, and Croesus seems to have some kind of reputation uh, for testing oracles, right? And we don't get a whole lot of what he did from Xenophon, but there's uh, some stuff in Herodotus that tells us the kind of thing that he did. He would ask the Delphic oracle about something, and he'd ask about the kind of thing that could be verified, and then he'd go out and verify it. And so there was a kind of scientific method, a kind of proto-scientific method in his approach to the oracles. Now, you remember that... Um, uh, Cyrus has his own doctrine about the oracles, and it seems like he's learned it from his father. And it's something like, well, you train, you prepare, because the gods only reward people who are ready or who are able. And then you keep on taking the oracles until they're positive, and then you go. Right? So he isn't uh, terribly reliant on the oracles as a diagnostic. Right? But it looks like Croesus was trying to rely on them and wanted to make his reliance on them solid. And uh, the result is Croesus now has an interpretation of what the Delphic Oracle means by know thyself, which is one of the famous, uh, one of the two famous sayings on the uh, Delphic Oracle's um, building at Delphi. Um, and it's a very strange thing. Uh, here's the way I put it. Um, he thinks that if you succeed in life at each instant when you succeed, you're knowing yourself and if you fail in life, in each instance when you fail, you are not knowing yourself. So for example, when he fought Cyrus and he lost, it was proof that he didn't know himself. And so um, I guess the question I'd ask is, uh, what do we think about that kind of understanding of what it means to know thyself? Do we like it? Does it make some sense to us? It, it seems almost Socratic in the character, your question, because it yeah. seems like at the moments at which you fail, you're mistaken about the good. Yeah. You thought you knew what the good was. And so, again, I mean, just as Panthea learns a Socratic lesson, Croesus seems to be learning a Socratic lesson here. And uh, Socrates was told something by the oracle, it, it occurs to me, wasn't he, about knowing yeah. oneself? Yeah, well, he was told that he's the <laughs> wisest uh, yeah. of all the Greeks, of course, right? And so he, he set out to, to see whether that was true, to prove it, right? This yeah. is his account in the Apology. So in that sense, he resembles Croesus. And he does have also an interpretation of know thyself. It means go out and examine people. Yeah. Right. So Croesus and Socrates are very close here. That's what I'm thinking. Right. And well, and, and, and I think you're right. And, and I think the message um, of, of, with respect to what Croesus learns is that we, to get into the details, of course, he asks about his children and he's mistaken or, you know, he doesn't realize that, okay, he's going to have children, but one's going to be a mute and these kinds of things. But the most interesting lesson is the one that comes at the end where he said that he thought that he would be made happy by being a great political man. And he was puffed up uh, about this when they asked him to be general and all these kinds of things. But then he met Cyrus on the battlefield and realized, whoa, I, you know, I'm not cut out for this and these kinds of things. <laughs> and so then he says, and this is very interesting, he says something similar to what Cyaxares had said many books ago, but um, his conclusion is very different. He says to Cyrus, you've done me a great favor because you've prohibited me from battle. And so you've made me into a wife 
you've made me into your wife. Uh, I'm like my wife. She, when, when I was out conquering, all she did was sit at home and get all the good things. And now you've given me that life. And if you remember with Cyaxares, he said to Cyrus, I feel so awful. You've made me like your wife. I can't, I don't want to be your wife. I feel like an impotent man. Whereas Croesus is like, yes, thank you for making me into your wife. And so it seems to me that what Croesus learns here is that he was, um, just to put it very broadly, he was mistaken about the good. Maybe the best way of life. He thought the best way of life was the political or martial way of life. And he's been shown here, um, that that wasn't his true good. And there's a certain sense in which he rebukes the goodness and the happiness um, that can come from the political way of life. And this again is a very Socratic, a Socratic lesson. And I, I wonder whether Cyrus learns it because it says simply um, on hearing his argument, Cyrus was amazed at his good spirits. And in the future, <laughs> he took Croesus wherever he went, either because he believed that he might somehow be useful or because he held it to be safer that way. And it just seems to me that Cyrus is like, this guy, this guy knows something. <laughs> but I, it's not clear to me that Cyrus gets exactly what he knows. Um, yeah, let, let, let me press on this a little bit because I think um, there's something Socratic about him, but I, I, I wonder whether it's a parody of Socrates yeah. and that there's actually something perverse about Croesus. And then the perversity, I think Cyrus might notice it and uh, might decide that that makes Croesus dangerous. He sometimes takes his advice, but he doesn't always act according to it. And, and he might think that Croesus is a dangerous guy. So here, here's my thought. Um, it happens to us all the time that we try something and if it goes badly, we say that was a bad idea. And if it goes well, we say that was a good idea, right? But judging something on the outcome of it, uh, isn't always, I think, a good basis for judgment. It might never be a good basis for judgment because there is some degree of chance involved, right? It might have been a good idea. It might have been something you should have tried, and it might have failed for reasons uh, different from its being um, a good or a bad idea. So um, Croesus thinks that he lacks virtue because he lost to Cyrus, Right. So he reasons from virtue uh, to knowledge. Right. He says, OK, well, I lost to Cyrus, therefore I must lack virtue. But virtue is knowledge. Right. Therefore, I don't know myself. Right. But doesn't that mean that if he could just try something and then if it succeeds, it must have been the right thing to do. Right. So there's a kind of lack of solidity or um, instability or vacillation in this view that Croesus has. Uh, and I think it makes him uh, a, a dangerous guy in Cyrus's view. And it might be incoherent, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you have to know whether things are a good idea to try before you know how they turn out, right? Isn't that the real knowledge? So you say he confuses um, success with knowledge. Yeah. Um, it's not, but do, would you say, do you think, I mean, you say Cyrus is aware of this. It's not clear to me Cyrus isn't perhaps guilty of the same sin, um, you know. Um, well, say, say a little bit more. I mean, he, he might also make wrong inferences from his successes. I think that's what you're, is that what you're thinking? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I just mean, uh, um, how do I say? He, uh, he's under the impression on the campaign, it seems to me, that doing this will make him happy and that the success after success will, you know, we're going to get there. And then he gets to the end and the success hasn't really done <laughs> done much for him. His friends begin to notice this. In fact, at one point it says they're glad to get away. They're glad to leave him. Um, <laughs> they, they just want to go the heck home. And um, 
it, so it just occurs to me that Cyrus has this, he's killing it. He's like, yep, every success we're winning. Cause I'm, I'm basically a God, like, obviously yeah. Yeah. even when he meets Croesus, he says, well, Croesus, we're both human beings. So we should talk, <laughs> you know, and that's a very, I don't, I don't get on the podcast with Jeff and Brian and say, well, Hey, every, Hey guys, uh, we can all talk about the education. Science, Cause after all, we're all three human beings, right? What that really indicates is that I don't think I'm a God, but I kind of do, right. but I'm willing to come down to your level. So it just seems to me that Cyrus has this seduction of success um, as well without real knowledge of its consequences, where Socrates is willing to say, I don't want, I don't want that life. I, I and you shouldn't either um, or something like that. But I think that's a good segue into kind of talking more like, you know, what does Cyrus learn and what do we learn of Cyrus, you know, by the end of the book. And I want to posit something that you guys can either riff on or not riff on, on this, but you know, when you were talking about Croesus talking about, you know, being Cyrus's wife. And when you were talking about Cyaxerxes, talking about being Cyrus's wife, the, the image of um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers popped into my head, which is basically like Fred's, Fred's leading the dance, but Ginger's got to do everything that Fred does backwards and in heels. And, you know, I, I haven't read ahead, so I don't know how this ends, but I'm just wondering if he runs into somebody who's a better dancer than him and can do it backwards and in heels uh, better than, um, Cyrus can, or the other thing that's popping into my head is that he doesn't have a dance partner anymore. And so that he's just, you know, he doesn't know what to do with himself because he's a dancer, but he doesn't have anybody to dance with. Yeah. That seems likely. Yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what happens in, well, in the last I, book. So. I, I, I like that you've uh, relied on a dancing image and, uh, you know, the image of uh, two lovers or potential lovers dancing together. Cause I really do think that it's Eros and things connected with it that are going to um, be a problem for Cyrus. Ultimately uh, children, uh, marriage, right? Those issues. Uh, I mean, does this seem safe to us to say at this point, by the end of book seven, has Cyrus, however little he really understood what was going on with Abradatus and Panthea, has he decided that any attempt to weaponize Eros is too dangerous and instead he's got to suppress Eros, right? As far as he can, right? And so the eunuchs, for example, right? And so uh, the taking weapons away from people and keeping them poor, trying to keep their, uh, their acquisitiveness down, right? That he has seen that um, if Abradatus will throw himself into the middle of a phalanx that is not turning in front of his chariot, um, then of course somebody will throw himself at Cyrus with a dagger, right? Of course, if Eros can make one person do this, it can make another person do this. And so this stuff is, is dynamite, no more playing with it. I'm done. Is that, is that what he figured out? Yeah. The, well, go ahead, Shella. Well, I was just going to say, um, he may have learned not to weaponize it in the ways you say, but I don't think he sees that he shouldn't be the object of it. In other words, he, he hasn't seen that. He's seen that it's, it's dangerous for others to play with fire, but he um, seems to want to make himself the object of the arrows. After all, the first thing he does after he, after he conquers Babylon is literally sits himself in the center of it and the entire town, the entire city comes out and he's in the middle. Um, I mean, what, what more, it's like when um, 
when a president accepts the nomination, Obama accepted the nomination at the Denver Broncos stadium. And he was the only person on the entire football field and the whole stadium was filled with people cheering for him. This is kind of the vision that I get of Cyrus. So I think you're right um, about the arrows, but I think he, 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 um, he doesn't uh, apply the lessons to himself. And one other maybe piece of evidence of this is um, uh, Croesus says, Cyrus, you make me into your, into your wife. He says to him, you make me into a beloved. Um, uh, and Cyrus wants to be the beloved of everyone, but in a very different way than Croesus is the beloved. Um, and so it, it occurs to me that Cyrus is amazed by this man who had the same ambition that Cyrus himself had to be the beloved of the world. Croesus was the Cyrus of the Assyrians. And now to see this man in a certain way made castrated or impotent, and to claim, well, I am the, the, the beloved, but I've been transformed into a new kind of beloved. And, and this strikes me as in a way the kind of beloved, this is why I'm, I don't think that Socrates and Croesus are in any way comparable, but Socrates was also a beloved who kind of lived off the good deeds of other people. Like, you know, he was a mm -hmm. moocher. Like, yeah. uh, you, you guys go do all the hard stuff and just give me, you know, give me a little money. There's people who support me. We keep it quiet. I don't ask for money, you know, kind of a thing. And meanwhile, Alcibiades is just in love with this man. And so I would just point out that there's this other kind of love, of beloved, that Xenophon is pointing to, that Croesus is sort of on the, uh, you know, boundaries of, that Cyrus, I think, just totally doesn't, doesn't see that happiness could come from that. So, mm -hmm. so the, the eunuch thing is, is very interesting, right? That he chooses to kind of surround himself with eunuchs. And I wonder how much of that is that he doesn't want people like Chris Santos, um, you know, responsible for like his, you know, being the closest to him because potentially that would take some of this love that, you know, his quote unquote people uh, are showing him and divert it from, you know, Cyrus to one of his generals. I also wonder how much he potentially relates to, to the eunuchs, right? Because, you know, we don't see Cyrus being sexually interested in like anyone, right? There's, there's the little, the little bit we get with the median cousin, you know, with the kiss and that's about it. So I'm wondering also, um, you know, is, is the eunuchs partly a tactical decision of, you know, uh, if I just, they, they don't, they can't have children, they don't worry about their lineage. So if I could just reward them, um, monetarily, then I can buy their loyalty. Uh, there's nobody else in the kind of inner circle, uh, that can divert the love of his subjects away from Cyrus. But also, is there something that makes, um, at this point, when he's conquered everything, is there something eunuch-like about Cyrus where um, he has no, he has nothing to, to love anymore, that he cannot express Eros, only potentially receive it? Is there something going on like that? Yeah, that strikes me as as uh, really apt. And uh, one of the things I point out, and this might be, I don't know to what degree this is a complication of, of uh, what uh, Shiloh mentioned earlier about Cyrus wanting to be seen, but it might also indicate the direction that you're headed, Brian, in the sense in which he, um, uh, he himself doesn't have any um, 
uh, outlet for his eros. Uh, if you look, uh, this is in chapter five and it's uh, parenthetical number 37. So it's 224 on the, uh, in the Ambler translation. Um, it says that Cyrus was desiring to establish himself uh, in the way that he thought was fitting for a king and he wants to bring his friends in on it. Um, and it says his goal is so that he could appear seldom and with dignity while provoking as little envy as possible, right? And um, a few sections later, I think it's uh, 46, it's bottom of the next page, 225. Uh, during his discussion with his friends, he criticizes generals who are not seen frequently because they neglect the troops. It seems to me there's, there's some difficulty or tension in here going on. Maybe it's a tension in Cyrus. On the one hand, he wants to be seen. I think he wants to be at the center of the circle, the way Shiloh described it. On the other hand, I think he knows that the unseen God is more powerful than the seen one. The one who is seen, you say, oh yeah, I could take that guy down if I got close enough. Right? The one who's seen you say, what's so special about him? Sure, he's got high heels and some cosmetics and stuff on, but does he really deserve all of this? Whereas the unseen one, uh, there, maybe you say, oh, he could be like anything, and maybe he does deserve all this. So I think um, uh, Cyrus is speculating about the possibility of being an invisible ruler to some extent, and maybe having eunuchs goes together with that. And maybe that also shows uh, some defect in his own arrows. He doesn't really, um, he's, he's not sure how much he needs to interact uh, with other people at all. He just wants to hold on to the empire. Yeah, and I guess this will come to a head. You already alluded to it in the high heels and cosmetics. Um, but next time, uh, he, he, I think you're right. He wants to be seen uh, or in other words maybe he tries to split the difference uh which we'll have to see but he wants to be seen but but he wants to be seen as immortal while when he's seen you see what i mean we, we can't yeah, quite yeah. see that now but that would be the way to 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 solve this this problem is to be seen as something that's wholly unworldly or otherworldly and then you get the best of both the way zeus does <laughs> so yeah with, yeah, it's, it's no good, Sir Alistair. Uh, I was just going to say with the eunuchs, I mean, you can tie this back to what Croesus had said in a way, because, you know, if you really look objectively at what has happened here, Cyrus gets to the end of the game. Um, he is now surrounded by all sorts of people making all sorts of requests of him. He doesn't even have time to talk to his friends. The friend who loved him, Artabazus, says to him, I thought we were going to get to the end and it was we were going to get to hang out. And now, like, we don't even get to hang out. Tell these people to go away. I love you. Wasn't that the point of all this? And so I say to my students, you know, you have this man and he's tremendously rich, tremendously talented, tremendously good looking, tremendously successful. Uh, he can't see any of his friends. Uh, some of his friends seem to be mad at him. Uh, he's worried that everyone in town wants to stab and kill him. Uh, and so what he's done is, is he sat himself in a house with a bunch of castrated dudes. And, he's, and that's the end. Like, that's the good. Like, that's why we did all this. You see what I mean? Like, does that sound to anyone here like happiness? Whereas Croesus at least is like, hold the phone. <laughs> you know, I can kind of see where this is going. Uh, but, and, and so one wonders whether, I mean, I think we could ask the question now, why does Cyrus go on campaign? 
what does he learn? Is he happy? This seems to me to be, in a certain sense, misery uh, for him. And so I wonder what Xenophon is trying to say and what Cyrus is not educated in. Clearly something happened. The wiring is gone uh, or went wrong on, on the education of Cyrus. So do you all have any thoughts about this? Not a thought about that quite yet, but I do have an additional piece that I think goes in the direction you're headed, which is that um, this coming home to Babylon, this sense in which uh, Cyrus's palace will now be the king's palace in Babylon, um, and the irony that he establishes this kind of, reestablishes this kind of parody of Persia in the empire that he ends up with, right? So there's him, his inner circle is the eunuchs, and then the next concentric circle between him and all the people who want to kill him and he's keeping deliberately unarmed and impoverished are the Persian commoners who are now going to behave like the Persian peers standing day and night outside the palace ready to do anything, right? Basically a Praetorian guard, right? If you want to know you've got a, a tyrant on your hands, look for the Praetorians, right? So, uh, you know, he did all this. He liberated their acquisitiveness, and now he's telling them, oh, virtue, oh, moderation, oh, continence, right? And we started out with a terribly unequal system. We've ended up with a terribly unequal system. And the last word is, oh, and by the way, we're going to teach our children this, right? So the, the last word on the education of Cyrus, at least in book seven, is the children will be educated to perpetuate a system that is not all that different from the problematic system of, of Persia that we started with, but is an empire. Yeah, if you, if you needed Persia, if Persia was the goal, why did you leave Persia? Because what you've done now has made it tremendously more difficult because Persia only works on a small scale. The people, you have to know the people by name, they have to sleep by the buildings, you have to know, you know, and, and now you're gonna say, and this is again, Cyrus is tremendously tactically wise, whether he's politically wise, I can't say that he thinks, and I assume he's serious, maybe he's not, that he could recreate Persia in an empire. I mean, the American founders of all people knew that this, this, wasn't, uh, this wasn't really a possibility. We've got to do something else. So I think you're right. And I think Xenophon is just layering on defect after defect of, of Cyrus. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying there's not wisdom there, but you see what I mean. I think the critique of Cyrus is now exposed nakedly. Well, I think that's probably a good note to uh to end on there guys um so we have book eight coming up next week um where we will be wrapping this up and maybe find out uh about what really is the education of cyrus or maybe it'll be another cliffhanger um <laughs> but thank you jeff thank you shiloh for another fun pod thank you yeah thank you both and again, listeners, we've got our Amazon store set up. Uh, some small, tiny little portion uh, goes to support the show if you buy one of the books uh, through our website at combatandclassics.org. And we also have the email newsletter. We're on the Instagram. We're all over the place. Um, and reach out to us. Um, you can get in touch with us, combatandclassics at gmail.com if you got any feedback, things you'd like to hear us talk about, works that you'd like us to dig into, um, or just suggestions in general. We'd love to hear from you. So uh, thanks, guys. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.